0: Hi,
1: hey, I'm mm-hmm. Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Cone. Hi, I'm Kevin
2: Maxis. Hello, I'm Jonathan Maguire. Hi, it's Grant Hackett. Hi, I'm Sharon Green from the Walleroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashinian <laughs> and Gashinian and Not The Footy yep. Show. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. It's been a while, but it's good to be back. And as usual, we've got a really interesting guest lined up for you this time around. We're catching up with James Reed from Reading University who was part of three academics who put together a discussion paper labelled the long shadow of an infection, COVID-19 and performance at work. Now, what the relevance that has with sport is they looked at Serie A and the Bundesliga to see how players who had COVID reacted when they came back to playing. It's really interesting. It was quite heavy reading, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to James read a little bit later. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. Good to be back, John.
0: Oh, yes, it is. You've been away.
2: I have indeed. Yeah, I went to the UK to visit my dad. And, uh, yeah, he's 94 this month, so had to go and see him. And I also got to watch my football team.
0: I did notice the post. Was it a home game? It was
2: a home game, game, but we sadly lost. But as we go to record this weekend, uh, they could make the playoffs or could win promotion. So it's a big weekend.
0: What would that make of Division 2? We'd
2: go back to Division 1, having got relegated last year.
0: Okay, so it's Premier League, Division 1, Division 2. No, Premier League,
2: Championship, Division 1, Division 2.
0: So you're in fourth grade at the moment.
2: Yeah, the old fourth division. (laughs) Okay. Exactly, much easier to remember the old uh, way than the stupid new names, but anyway.
0: Yeah, you don't know where you're going with some of those <laughs> competitions. Especially well, when they split them in half. Uh, Halfway through the season, you get two pools of the, the not good enoughs and the... I oh, no.
2: Isn't it best to just keep it simple?
0: you think so. You can lead off.
2: Well, on the subject of football, I'm going to stick with that. And uh, anyone who has been basically following the news will have seen that we've got a lot of the... Big-name football teams heading down under again. Uh, Barcelona, Manchester United, Celtic are coming. Apparently they're looking for somebody to replace Rangers in the Sydney Super Cup. Crystal Palace, Leeds and Aston Villa are also heading to Australia and in particular Western Australia. And I think, the, look, I understand why these teams want to come here because the government here is, seems to be willing to throw money at them And you get, for example, the New South Wales government claiming that on average these games will generate more than $10 in visitor expenditure. Now, if we go back to when Man United came over the last time, New South Wales government made a statement such as that. The game was on the Saturday. On the Monday, they announced that they'd already accumulated that money from visitors. How the hell could they work that out in 48 hours? I mean, it's (laughs) just ridiculous. So it's propaganda because there are people who've looked into that and they said... These are just numbers that governments pluck from the air. Now, most of these matches, yeah, it's all about making money, but the money goes to the European clubs. Very little of it actually stays in Australia. And, you know, it's all about making money for the promoters, making money for the clubs. And let's be honest, they don't really care about Australian football. It's all about them basically raising their profile and making more money from or more interest. And it just worries me that we need to start smartening up. I think if Australian football wants to get ahead... We shouldn't be doing this. I mean, and yes, there are people that will go. Yes, it's great that young kids are going to go. And if it makes young kids and inspires them to follow the sport, that has to be a good thing. And you can understand that there's a chance for some of these players or fans to see the likes of Messi with Barcelona, Ronaldo with Manchester United, play for probably the only chance they're ever going to get to see them play in their life. But the problem is... It's not a truly competitive game if they do play when they come anyway, because it's just a pre-season game, they go at it fairly lightheartedly, and I don't know, I I just, you talk to a lot of people about the games, and people that are hardened fans, you know, a lot of them just go, I'm not interested, it's a pre-season game, why would I pay 60 bucks to go and watch a game like that? Some of them obviously feel very differently. Some of them are supporters. But then the other thing I don't understand, John, is we've got the All-Stars, A-League All-Stars, are going to be playing against the team of Barcelona three days before the A-League Grand Final. Now, surely they're saying, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to highlight the attention on the Grand Final. I'm sorry. I think it's going to detract from the Grand Final. The other thing is, how can it be an A-League All-Stars team when the two best teams are playing in the Grand Final and their players can't play in the All-Stars game because they'll be wanting to save themselves for the Grand Final.
0: Maybe they will be playing in the All-Stars game. Maybe an edict will come down from above.
2: Well, it's very unlikely. And then, to cap it all off, of course, we have Dwight York is going to coach this All-Stars team. Now, Dwight York was a wonderful player. But as far as I know, he's never coached anywhere, and it was good to hear the football coaches, Australia, actually come out and uh, say congratulations on securing the game, but they were a little bit disappointed that the role did not go to an Australian coach. An Australian uh, team. Exactly.
0: In a a mean-nothing game.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's never coached at any level, John. Any level and yet he's got a plum role like that, and they think that's going to be good publicity for the game. I'm afraid I everyone I've spoken to in football goes, has he got the job? It's like ridiculous.
0: Uh, we're talking about these big English clubs when they come to Australia and the crowds, etc. and a lot of the people that go to those games have got very little to do with football, and it becomes more of the social. All of those corporate areas will be full of people that have got no idea about football, and the the real football tragics, the hardcore tragics, uh uh don't really put much store in any of this stuff. I mean, we've got the classical, it's already started. When when these things are announced, oh the full squad's coming. Oh, the oh, full yeah. squad will be there. They'll all be here and you know, over the next few months they'll gradually drop off and drop off. And you know
2: But also you've got to remember there's a World Cup, not in the summer this year. You know, it's gonna be a few months after the, well, it's a little bit later in the year. So pre-season, I would have thought you're looking to protect some of your big stars who may be going to the World Cup and their national associations would have said that. And it just, like, you know, if you're a Liverpool fan, you're not gonna go and watch Man United when they're here. You're not gonna go and watch Leeds United when they're here. You're not gonna go and watch Crystal Palace. That's the thing. Some people may who are true across the board football fans, but if you have a strong loyalty to a club, you're not going to go and watch
0: Oh, look, and I get the idea, too, because of our remoteness. What chance do we have of seeing Manchester yeah. United? You have to spend a hell of I a lot that. of money to go and see. And if they're your team, good luck to you. But as, as far as a sporting spectacle goes, some pre-season practice matches, do they really capture your imagination as an outsider?
2: But also, you know, there's talk about, oh, it'll generate this money to New South Wales. Well, Man United, Aston Villa... Crystal Palace and Leeds are all playing in Perth. So I would doubt very many. You might get 50 or 60 will go across to watch the games in Sydney as well. But most people from Western Australia are not going to bother... When they've got the games here, why would they go into New South Wales? You'll get some from Queensland or Victoria may come up. But again, they go, oh, we're going to get this influx from Asia. But usually in the past, they've played games in Asia either on the way here or on the way back. back. Because if they're going to come over this side of the world, why would they just play in Australia? So again, I don't believe the figures that we have our governments and our tourism ministers spouting are ever going to happen.
0: The the one thing that may happen is you might get some uh, Europeans who are thinking of coming here, deciding that they will in that time frame. I was thinking about going to Australia yeah, on okay. a holiday, and you know what, this came up, and I thought, why don't I yeah. combine it? And you do get those travelling fans that will come who go to all of these overseas away games, the real cashed-up ones do it.
2: But, John, you would guess 100, possibly 200 of those would yeah, be maximum, maybe. and then they're going to generate 10 million? I don't think I so. A casino. <laughs> They'd have to <laughs> be some pretty cashed-up people if they're doing that. I mean, the interesting thing as well is, in the past, you know, the A-League clubs have not gained very much from these games, um, with the promoters getting most of the data and information and also a share of the profits. I believe that this time around, uh, they are going to have a little bit more say. And Danny Tanzend, who's the CEO of outgoing CEO of um, Sydney FC and the APL which is the Australian Premier League's chief executive he actually said that they're now going to be able to capture uh, all those people who've bought a ticket to go and watch these games uh, to, and they're going to try and entice them to come and watch an A-League game and they're also going to look to try and um, get them to read or follow the keep up which is their digital hub that the APL paid $30 million on developing, which I have to say is nowhere on par with, and I'm not even an Optus subscriber, but the Optus football stuff is far greater uh, interest than the stuff being put out by Keep Up,
0: Keep up. what is it?
2: It's their, uh, it's an app, a digital hub that they, A-League developed to try and get that, and they're going to start sending, so you buy a ticket, and they're going to get the database and then they're going to start bombarding you with content from Keep Up to try and get you to subscribe to that. And it's just like, oh, my gosh. I mean, if I buy a ticket, I don't want that. Hopefully, you can opt out of their mailing list. All of these. So be warned, those of you buying tickets. All
0: of these sports organizations are turning to selling their databases There's a way to make money. And, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I've got some issues with it. But it's the way the world's going. I mean, I've had to sign up, register to play hockey with Hockey Australia. They've got my email address. They've got whatever details. They'll sell that information. Yep. And I'll, you
2: know. But the big question, John, with these games coming out, and I think to me this is the most important question of all, is is there long-lasting value to the sport in Australia having these teams come out and play?
0: Um. Oh, when were they last year? Two years ago. Yeah. We got better or worse? It's hard to tell in two years.
2: Oh, the A League's got worse. considerably worse.
0: Well, even Australia, the Australian team has got considerably worse. Exactly. But that's too short a time. You would think to judge these things, it'll be look. I, I just, I just
2: think as well, having so many of them, and I mean, there's talk now of international teams. I think Brazil might be coming out as well.
0: The one, one. But area the reason of they're
2: coming is we're throwing money at them. Yes. That's the only reason. So we've got to get a return on it. Otherwise, you may as well invest that money into junior sport yeah. or to develop the youth, the next generation.
0: You could argue, oh, well, it's the kiddies. It's about the kiddies. And the kiddies are going to be exposed to these heroes and it's going to drive them into playing in the A-League. No, it's going to drive them to want to go to Europe. <laughs> it's not going to drive them to go play in the A-League, mate. They want to go play there. And you know what? Their allegiances will turn to those clubs not to local clubs. So suddenly some eight-year-old goes to that event and, oh, wow, well, why am I going to Perth Glory Games? Oh, following this stuff, thank you very much. And look how much that bloke gets paid.
2: But, I mean, this is, is, again, my argument, is how does it benefit the A-League teams or the A-League itself? It doesn't. It only benefits the clubs that are coming down here because they will grow those fans. If you're a young child and you go and watch... Man United, exactly. say, play Aston Villa here and they win. You're going to probably support Man United for the rest of your life. Or if Aston Villa win, you'll support Aston Villa yeah. for the rest of your life. So that doesn't help the A-League in any way. And I think the other problem you've got is now what we're looking at. is We saw with that European Super League where you know they were looking to set up that. What's What's to stop down the track? Them playing and it was muted about ten years ago that this might happen that they come and play say a European Champions League game in Australia because the government's going to throw them money and again it helps them boost their supporter base around the world it, but where's the benefit for Australia?
0: Well, it staggers me in a sport that can afford to pay a bloke hundred million dollars a year that they want the government to pay for us. That's one bloke out of uh, in in professional soccer is making that much. Think of the money that's in the sport. It's an amazing amount of money, and you you want us to pay for you to come here? Right. It's like the same argument, oh, Tony Sage complaining about, oh, we need a home of sport. We need a home for soccer. No, you want a purpose-built stadium built for you, and then you want unlimited access to that purpose and the right to control that purpose-built stadium that's been built by the taxpayer. Go and speak to your mates in Europe who are paying out all this obscene money to players, and say, "Can we have some of that to build a home for soccer?" You know, isn't isn't it about sharing the sport, looking after itself, or you want us as taxpayers to look after you?
2: Well, the other argument there, John, is is if you're going to have these teams come out, why are ticket prices so high? If it is about growing the game, and if it and if these clubs coming out are genuine about you know wanting to grow the game or enhance football in this country and all the the stuff that they'll, the rhetoric that they will speak, then the ticket prices should be lower. They should be the same price as, say the A League tickets, rather than sixty bucks a head.
0: Well, I did hear someone complaining about it on Saturday and saying that they they uh, you know looked into getting tickets and it was two hundred and thirty dollars.
2: That's a lot of money.
0: Now I don't know how true that is. It might be a lot lower, but that's what this person claimed. They they approached to buy tickets and were told that's how much a ticket was, and that's not in a corporate area.
2: Yeah, well, wow, that's a lot of money. It is,
0: and I—I'm I, staggered. I don't think that's the correct amount, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was, if they were really stinging people
2: for it. No, well, that's too. Oh, look, I still, um, uh, maybe call me cynical, but I—I I just don't know how much football in this country gains by having these games.
0: Oh, I'm not sure that gains anything at all. It's good, you know what it is. It's like a sugar hit. It's a sugar. Actually, hit.
2: that's a good way of putting it.
0: And that's that's all it is. And the only long-term lasting effects this will have will be to take Australian kids away from following their local teams and following overseas teams. And that's been one of the problems for the A-League since its inception with the National League, especially in the modern digital age. People don't have to follow Australian teams anymore because they can watch live games from overseas and they can watch their favourite teams and follow them as if they were there in that country. True. Hi, I'm Derek Underwood, and this is the Not the Footy Show.
2: Well, as I mentioned, uh, our special guest on this show, it may sound like a heavy topic, but they did a report into the effect of COVID nineteen and performance at work. It's called The Long Shadow of an Infection. It was put together by Kai Fischer, Benedict Schmal, I hope I said that right, and published by the Heinrich Heiner University in Dusseldorf. And James Reed was also one of the professors involved in this report and I caught up with him and I do apologize just in advance uh because it was a very bad line the day we were talking. James Reed, welcome to Not the Footy Show. Hello. Well, James, obviously you and uh, a few other people have been very involved in this study into of so the effects of COVID on predominantly footballers at the moment. How did the study come about?
1: Um, it kind of, I mean, it's, it's something that I think intrigued us. Uh, and then we realised that, well, Kai and Benedict realised that they could identify a lot of the players that were being announced in Italy and Germany as having... COVID and we realized that data existed, you know, the Who Scored website, um, very really detailed data on exactly what's happening in football matches. So we thought, well we can, you know, get a lot of measurements there, we can identify who has and who hasn't got COVID, when they have it, and therefore we can start to really look and see what the effect is. Uh, in Germany there are some high profile cases of players contracting COVID, uh, and then not necessarily performing so well afterwards. Uh, and so uh, it all kind of tied together. And so we, we got together, uh, pulled together the data sources and started to uh, analyse what we could see in the data. And
2: I mean, we should just tell our listeners that you focus predominantly on the leagues in Germany and Italy because obviously there were high incidents of COVID in both those countries, but the football competitions continued. Is that fair? <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah, so in all European football, there was a uh, initial pause uh, as the pandemic first began in spring two thousand and twenty uh, but both leagues resumed german, the german league was the first one to resume the italian league not too long afterwards they're both uh you know they're two of the big five European leagues, so they're well known uh, well publicized leagues to look at uh, and obviously of course, both had reasonably sizable uh, waves uh, in the more general population as well so they kind of seem like uh, good, good places to look at to try and um, you know, see if we could pick up any kinds of effects of COVID.
2: Were you able to differentiate between the different variants or was it just obviously anybody who picked up the COVID virus in any of its forms?
1: We don't have information on which variant uh, anybody got. What we had for each league was the information released on how many players were, were tested, uh, tested positive any given week. Uh, or any given particular day. And then what, what Kai and Benedict did was that they were able to identify about 90 to 95% of those players. Because, you know, the announcement is, you know, five players have tested positive or 10 or four or something. And so then the job was to work out via social media, via news reports, who, uh, those particular players were, uh, in any particular announcement. Uh, and so that's, that's what we had was the fact that they had tested positive. Uh, not that they've got any, uh, either of the, or any of the variants, uh, over, over the last, uh, two years. The other thing to say is that we only looked as far as the end of the 2020-21 season, which means that, uh, none of the players were vaccinated,
2: uh, up until that point either. And so it's pre-vaccination. Yeah, which, I, th- I think the findings actually are a good argument for people to actually get vaccinated, weren't they?
1: Well this again, this is what is, is fed quite a lot into the German media because, uh, again, a number of high profile players have chosen not to be vaccinated, uh, and so as a result, <laughs> and then some of them have caught uh, COVID as well. Uh, it, it certainly seems, you know, on the face of it, a very good argument for being vaccinated if some of the fittest individuals uh, around uh, have you know dis- these kinds of effects over a reasonably long period of time from the COVID infection.
2: Yeah, I mean, your report looked at as well whether COVID-19 would affect the po- possibility of a player playing and for how long. I mean, does the performance of a previously infected player decrease once they return? Was that the ultimate findings that you found?
1: So what we did was we, we, we first of all looked at what we call the extensive margin, so essentially whether these players are playing or not, because uh, you can imagine if, if a player returns from COVID and he isn't the same player he was, well, we might not observe him playing so often because he's not being picked, so you don't observe any data on how well they're performing. So to some extent, therefore we have what's, you know, what's, what's referred to as sample selection. You know, we don't we observe the stats for every single player uh, that caught COVID if, you know, if a number of them don't play or they don't play so often. What the numbers suggest is that they are playing less in the initial, uh, you know, few games after. Uh, but then, again, if you go, if you go 100 or more days after the the infection, they do tend to be playing indistinguishably different uh, in terms of frequency to uh, pre pre-infection. So that you know, they're, they're by and large playing about as much as a player who didn't have the infection, um, and Conditional on how long they're playing in the game, we then looked at different measures of their productivity. and The one that we, we felt was actually the most useful measure was their passing, their pass performance. Because of course in a, in a football match, if you're not up to the pace of the game, well you're not in the right place to receive a pass or to make a pass, you're not involved in the game. Uh, and so we thought this was quite a, you know, quite a nice measure uh, of the extent to which players that get back are getting back up to the full pace of the game, what would be expected in terms of productivity in their industry. And it looks like that's one measure in which the players aren't fully recovering even 200 plus days after their infection. They're still about 5% down in terms of how many passes they're completing uh, in a game when they're playing.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was was an interesting thing for me to read when I was doing that. And, I mean, I think you referred to it as a cognitive impact. In other words, seeing the opportunities and being able to execute the pass appeared to have lessened. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yeah, I think so. Because he, well, there's two aspects. There's the cognitive and the physical. Um, You know, you've got to be able to be physically fit enough to be in the right position. But, of course, equally, you've got to also be with it enough to spot the passes to make um, and to, to, to execute them as well. So it's you know this is one of the things that you might criticize. You might say, well, look, it's it's a study of footballers. You know, I mean, how is that relevant for real life? Well, lots of real life jobs are physically demanding. Yeah, you know, we work as a builder in the construction industry, say, uh, and of course, lots of jobs are uh, you know are, are mentally demanding as well. competitive tasks, uh, huge amounts of jobs require that, and so. Uh, at least two dimensions on which this you know, it does remain relevant even if we're not all p- professional footballers.
2: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there the 200 days, you know, sometimes after it was taking that long and they're still not getting those percentages or the accuracy of the passing up. I mean, one thing I wondered with the World Cup this year, do you think that, you know, selectors are going to look at that and go, well, who's had the COVID and, and are they actually, you know, um, have they got their performance back up to scratch? Well, I
1: think my sense is more than likely given the extent of, you know, analytics and this kind of data, uh, being the bread and butter now of, you know, how elite football works. My guess is that you would kind of see, you would, you would simply see if someone had had COVID because they'd be, their performances, you know, if you know, I was also, you know, true and still hold true now given the different nature of the variants and so on, you would simply see that they were off you know, off the pace. They weren't quite playing as well as they previously were. And of course, you know, players go through phases when they're playing really well and when they're playing less well. And you know, those kinds of phases of play could coincide with where they run up to the World Cup and they may not uh, be selected. And it could be COVID, but of course it could be a whole range of other factors. You know, these are the things we never really observe when we're looking at you know, what we call observational data. We're just looking at how the world's going on around us and we can't always necessarily explain the things that we're seeing. But yeah, if these results are true, then you might see that players who have had COVID, uh, they might miss out on
2: things they might otherwise have, have been able to do, like going to a World Cup. One of the things that obviously, and I don't suppose you were able to work this out, was to look at the players who'd had COVID and how severely they were affected, because obviously it affects each of us very differently. And I was wondering if that would therefore have an impact on the, you know, the results that you had, depending on how severely they were affected.
1: Yeah, so the only thing that we've got again is, uh, you know, it's the time Basically, we don't have, um, you know, we don't have um, the extent to which they were out for a long period of time or anything like that. What we did was we tried to look at the early, uh, the early kind of. Um, uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to find these numbers now, actually, but what we did was we, we split up between the very first COVID infections right at the beginning of the pandemic and much later, you know, on the basis that, well, you know, the pattern appears to have been as we've gone through the pandemic, um, COVID infections seem to have been uh, a little bit less a little bit less severe. so you might imagine that the guys who got it based first uh, would have been the ones who were most affected. Uh, I'm just trying to find the results now to see if I can... Uh, I can illuminate you with that, but I don't think I can, unfortunately. That's all right, uh, no. That's, that's, that, that's, the only, that's the only way we can distinguish if we don't have any, you know, any yeah. other information on how the effect was.
2: The, the other interesting stat that sort of came out of your report, I found, was that despite the maybe drop-off in performance, you were saying that it didn't actually have any real effect on the number of goals scored.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the thing that, There's there's often found in these kinds of, um, you know, complex events. Essentially, a football match is quite a complex event, and um, what what you what you often find is that there's there's a, a, if you like, I guess, compensating effect. You know, you know that perhaps that player's not doing quite so well, and so the team will play slightly differently. Will perhaps alter their style, alter their approach. You know, there's, there's other studies of, for example, in cricket when they uh, switch to having fully international umpires from having a home-based umpire. There's no impact on match outcomes, but there are, there are fewer wickets given LDW, you know, so that it kind of suggests. we well, you think, well, that's that's an obvious pattern there, something strange going on, but it doesn't have an impact on the overall outcome, so it suggests that. Somehow, in the rest of the way in which the game plays itself out, there's, there's,
2: there's, a, there's a compensating effect. No, exactly. I mean, w- one of the other things that came out quite clearly was that if you were a player over 30, your performance tended to drop more than a player that was under 30. I think it was by 10%, the report right. said. Yeah. I mean, yeah, is, yeah, is that just exactly a it. kind of thing because we're getting older and its impact is going to be a little bit greater?
1: Well, exactly i mean this is the the kind of finding that we've noticed throughout isn't it that the elderly have been much more uh, affected by covid than younger folk and obviously within footballers the you know, your elderly players the 30 year old players and uh, so yeah they get about a 10 percent hit Players 26 to 30 is about a short five percent hit and then the young guys in the 25 the effect is negative but it's only it's only um, what well, it's, it's not really significant it's kind of borderline significant
2: really um so it was a clear. Yeah, a clear increase in the significance of the effect with with age, basically. I mean, we're seeing in a lot of countries, and I know it's different wherever you sort of live, but if you contract COVID now, it's sort of isolate for seven or 14 days, depending on where you live. And then you're sort of going back, which might be OK in the general workforce. But as you said, if you're in a physical job or if you're playing professional sport, is that a long enough rest period, did you find, or do you think players needed more rest time, in other words, to get back to close to where they were at? Well, this is you know, this isn't an important factor because when
1: all of these leagues returned after the COVID break, they were all trying to complete the seasons in a shortened space of time, so they were playing games every three or four days rather than every seven or eight days. Uh, and So we, you know, we could look at the rest days between games, so it's not, not the same as how fast they came back from the infection. I mean, I think back at the beginning, you know, certainly over the period that we're looking at, I think in most countries, and certainly in Italy and Germany, there were legal restrictions um, on you know, how long we had to isolate for. So I suspect they would have all had to have done that for at least that long. The kinds of protocols in place in professional football have uh, been quite, uh, quite strict uh, over the last couple of years. Um, so I think they would have taken the... The requisite amount of time, I think the interesting question actually is whether the number of days differs between Italy and Germany. I mean, I'm not sure about that, but that's something that seems to me we might uh, have a little bit of a look at it in time. But yeah, you know, well, what we found in terms of rest days is that obviously the effect uh, was a bit less significant if players had had a bit longer to rest between games. So we didn't, the effect wasn't significant uh, if they'd had longer than uh, basically two weeks between games, so if their manager was able to
2: rest them for a few games in the hectic schedule that they had. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we all know, as I say, that the, the virus affects everybody differently, and I mean, one question that somebody asked me when they knew I was going to talk to you was, you know, is there a necessity for an athlete who tests positive to COVID to stop training, or could they actually continue on their own, do you think, um, you know, if the symptoms aren't having an adverse effect on them? Yeah, so I, m- my understanding is that that's what would
1: that's what would have happened. I think uh, is that if you could train, you would you would carry on, but you'd obviously you would do it in isolation. So I guess you'd just be, I guess going for going for running your large back garden or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but you know, one of the things is, uh, the, you know, the, it, it's still the isolation because even if you didn't have uh, COVID. So there were situations where you would have to isolate because you were close contact with somebody that had. And England in the European Championships had that because they had uh, a player, Mason Mount, who uh, had to isolate after they played Scotland. And so there you have somebody who doesn't have the virus but has to isolate. And you imagine one of the aspects in which, you know, one of the aspects, what ways in which the COVID effect might happen is the fact that they've got to isolate for a period of time. You know, it isn't necessarily the virus itself, it's the isolation. If you're playing in a game like football where it's a network game and you've got to you know, be in time, be coordinated with your colleagues, if you've then got to be 10, 14 days on your own, then you know the argument
2: is you might see, you might see the effect just because of the fact that these guys have had to isolate. Yeah, I mean that to me leads me into the, one of the findings I think in your report where you were saying that the um, you noticed a reduced physical work from the first minute and then it deteriorated as the game progressed. Which, if you think, if you've been in isolation for fourteen days, you're gonna be a little bit off the mark, as you just alluded to. Then, yeah,
1: exactly. Um, I mean, more, I think you know, there's, a, there's a few aspects of you know of the work that we've done that. I think enable us to say that it appears to be a COVID infection specifically rather than something that requires you not to train with your colleagues for some period of time because we're able to look at different types of injury. Uh, so we look at, you know, respiratory uh, injuries uh, versus uh, other kinds of injuries. Uh, and what we find is there's, you know, there's, there's a clear difference between how our players that have had COVID and this long-term effect on passing, you know, other kinds of injuries Know, there's just no, uh, you know, the, the, the pattern isn't there. There's, never, there's no, no impact uh, moving away in terms of passing performance uh, after they they return from the injury. And then if you look at COVID-19 versus other respiratory illnesses, so flu and I guess uh, more general pneumonia, pneumonia-type conditions, again, you know, it's COVID that has this significant negative impact. Whereas if you just have flu and you're forced out for a little while, there's there's no significant impact, there's no negative impact on passive performance. So it appears there's something specific to having COVID that
2: leads to uh, what we've observed in the data. Yeah, I mean, do you see this deterioration as being long term and, and they'll never get that back or is that the case in some players and maybe not as we've again touched on maybe the younger players or or is it something that's just for a period of time they're going to deteriorate and then they will get back
1: well I mean yeah, I guess the simple question is we, are, we have Of that length, longer term yet. Um, So what we might, what we'll be able to start doing soon is extending the study to look at longer periods of time because it's been now a longer period of time since COVID emerged, Um, and so we'll be able to look at that a little bit more. But as you mentioned already, you know the the effect on players under 25 isn't, you know, is, is much smaller so you can imagine given it's not statistically significantly different from zero that you can probably infer from that that it's the young guys that return to normal and it's the older guys that are perhaps the ones where they never, never quite return uh, but again we'll find out <laughs> in, in due course
2: Well James it's been fantastic catching up with you thanks so much for your time because I know you're a very busy man and you've been hard to pin down but it's been really <laughs> yeah, worth yeah. having no, no, no. a chat but thanks very much for your time yeah.
1: Always thank you very much for your interest in the work. Hi, I'm Seth Coe,
2: and you're listening to Not the Footy Show. Well, that was James Reid from the University of Reading, just talking about the effects of COVID on players that played in the Bundesliga and Serie A. And, of course, that was before, obviously, the vaccinations were coming in and they were sort of checking everybody there. But some interesting findings there, John, in that the, obviously, over 30s, as you would probably expect, were having a longer period to recover than those that were much younger. But the thing that amazed me was the cognitive awareness that suddenly they noticed that your passing ability had dropped off considerably and for quite a period after you'd had the illness.
0: I don't know if it was you that mentioned this report to me, but I had heard that it had existed and that one of the findings was about the cognitive effects of COVID. So it was good to, to hear that.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, it'd be, as I said, it'd be interesting come the World Cup, whether or any sport, you know, whether play, coaches you see now actually hold off bringing players back quite so quickly.
0: Um, has anybody ever done a study like this on good old-fashioned plane flu?
2: I would have no idea. I I'd, don't I'd, I'd sort of delve into a lot of no, the no, academia that much.
0: No I'm, no, I'm just wondering how much it would... Because, you know, any... You, any disease or bug you're gonna have a period of time when you recover from it and all that sort of stuff, you know, that's there's no surprise in that. But um is does the same if effects caused by other things and we just haven't bothered going into the research because coronavirus is such a big thing and everybody's going corona, corona we've lived with the flu for hundreds of centuries and it's sort of bit gone on you know, it goes underneath the radar. Does the same thing happen with other Forms of infection or disease or whatever you think
2: it, I think they do, though, with... There are certain other illnesses because I remember when I had glandular fever and I was quite young then and it was at a time where I was trying to sort of pursue um, a dream of playing cricket to a certain level and I was on a training program and I was told, do not do your training program. I was not allowed to do anything for... I forget the exact period of time. I wasn't allowed to lift any weights... Or stuff like that during the period that I was ill, and for quite a bit after. They said you mustn't do that. You must give your body the full chance to recover. So there was, and that we're going back a long time now. That was, you know, forty years ago. So that the wariness of that is of, was obviously around, and I would have thought has advanced. So I think with some illnesses there, what is or was that knowledge, whereas probably with some like the flu, I don't know whether people just go, I oh, just. Stay in bed, take an aspirin, come back when you're feeling better, you know. Yeah,
0: I'm more thinking about is there a cognitive link with with, yeah. the, with the flu, for instance?
2: Or you would think the, there would be.
0: Oh, if there is for COVID, there's a good chance, you'd imagine. And I'm I'm not suggesting that COVID's nothing to worry about, don't I? I'm just interested if there's other aspects that this could lead to us studying.
2: You know Yeah. Well, anyway, I hope everybody found that interesting. I certainly found it very interesting to catch up with James. He's a very busy man, and I must thank him once again for giving up his time, and hopefully the line wasn't too bad and you actually enjoyed that.
0: Excellent. Now, um, it was a monumentous day in Australian sport, Ashley, last week. I think it was last week. It might have been the week before.
2: I think last week. While.
0: It's been a while. Um, a sad day. John Coates has stepped down as the head of the Australian Olympic Commission, committee, whatever they call them. Committee,
2: yeah.
0: 30-odd years, 35 years he's been
2: there. Good run.
0: Good run. Not without his enemies.
2: Oh, no, he's upset a few people over the years. On the
0: way. Um,
2: To be fair, he brought in a lot of money to the AOC.
0: Oh, he did, and I think he's done some good things, I think he's done some bad things as well. I mean, I have a very low opinion of the IOC at the moment. (laughs) Very low opinion. Um and I, 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 I was looking up, John, and I came across a story relating to, uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk, because when he announced his reply time He's the
2: Premier of Queensland, we should say, yeah, for our overseas yeah, listeners.
0: the, uh, the Australian city that's won, of uh, Premier of the state that won the hosting rights to 2036.
2: Olympic Brisbane. Games,
0: yep. Uh, so, big up in the, uh, old IOC world cheers now.
2: Is it 32, isn't it? 36, I think. I'm just trying to think. We've got Paris next, then Los, Los Angeles. is 32. Is it? Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, because well, that was the end of the TV deal. So they had to secure that. Otherwise, the TV deal was in jeopardy because the Olympics was on shaky ground. So that's why they jumped ahead, tried to find someone. And coincidentally, the vice president got Australia to put their hand up again.
1: Yeah.
0: As you do. Now, I, I Googled in... I was, I was looking for a particular story, so I Googled in John Coates, Anastasia Palaszczuk, into the Google monster, and, uh, you know, you come up with your first page of responses. Yeah. You scroll to the bottom, it says related searches. The first one that comes up is John Coates' obituary. <laughs> 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 so, That's
2: a bit premature, <laughs> isn't it? I would think so. He,
0: he's only quit the IOC. Well, he <laughs> hasn't. He still no, he's
2: still an IOC. Just quit yeah,
0: AOC. AOC. So step down from it. Anyway... Um, the reason I was looking at that, so, was a story that came out this week um, by the Daily Mail I'm reading from. was reported in various places. Uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk has apologised for bringing her boyfriend to an important meeting with the International Olympic Committee. The Queensland Premier made her apology during a press conference on Tuesday where she explained that the attendance of her surgeon boyfriend, Reza Adib, or is it, yeah, Adib, Adlib, no, Adib. Adib, yeah. Sorry, that's the... Um, it's the font they using. Adib, at the meeting in Sydney was simply a mistake. Miss Palaszczuk brought Dr. Adib along to the meeting at the Sofatel Hotel in Sydney on Sunday. IOC President Thomas Bark, outgoing and new AOC Presidents John Coates and Ian Chesterman, Brisbane Lord Mayor Adrian Schinner, and the head of the Brisbane 2032, you're right, Organising Committee, Andrew Leverus, were all in attendance. OK, keep that in mind. This is a...
2: Uh... Nice hotel, best beds, actually. Yeah,
0: sofa hotel. Now, this is quoting Palaszczuk. Now, I appreciate that there have been views expressed about this catch-up. She told reporters at a doorstop on Tuesday. I recognise that I have made a mistake, and I should not have taken my partner to that meeting. I apologise. It was never intentional to cause any distress to anybody. Ms Palaszczuk stressed that the meeting was only, quote, an informal catch-up. With officials. An informal catch-up.
2: But the picture showed them all sitting around a boardroom table. It looks that very didn't look, official. Yeah, it didn't look that informal to me.
0: What's interesting and is did her, have...
2: did her boyfriend leave once he realised that it was actually formal?
0: Uh, when reporters questioned the Premier further on Dr Adib's attendance, she apologised again. Look, I invited him and I made a mistake and I apologise that... I made a mistake, so I'm sorry. Well, I'm only assuming from that that she's just takes him to all sorts of meetings at all sorts of levels and just thought it was
2: a normal thing to do. Why would you take to a meeting like that? It just seems to me bizarre.
0: Did Bark take his wife?
2: Oh well, yeah, he Did Coates his wife. Was <laughs> exactly. she there? exactly? You know?
0: Or Squeeze, or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Uh, so Miss Palaszczuk's partner. Partner, sorry. That no one at the meeting questioned Dr. Adib's appearance and explained that the couple and officials were all in town there and got together on a Sunday. She followed up by assuring the media that Dr. Adib made no contributions during the meeting before apologising for a third time. Well, it was good that he was there to do nothing, wasn't it?
2: Well, they were all worshipping at the church of the IOC (sighs) on a Sunday.
0: Uh, It was a mistake. It shouldn't have happened. I can't undo what has happened. All I could do is apologise, and i sincerely do that. Now, uh, she faced a backlash over the weekend after... Dr. Adib was seen in images with her, with key Olympic officials who were taken at the meeting. Uh, questions were, were raised as to why Dr. Adib ca- tagged along in the first place with the deputy opposition leader, Jared Liege describing the scenario as weird and not appropriate. Now, this is what uh, the opposition leader had to say. I've just got to say, it's just a bit weird. The whole thing is weird. <laughs> <laughs> he said at a press conference, no one else had their partners at the meeting. Oh, we just said that. It was a properly prepared, formal meeting with very important people and the Premier's boyfriend at the table. Hang on a sec. No, the Premier's just told us. She said it was informal. It was an informal get-together. It wasn't a meeting. It was an informal get-together.
2: In a boardroom, round a table.
0: Yeah. Yeah. With just glasses of water.
2: Yeah. Very informal.
0: Very informal. You can bring
2: your coffee in yourself, you know.
0: Yeah, the Courier-Mail has revealed that Dr. Dibb's name was not included as an official attendee list for the meeting.
2: I hope he's in the uh, minutes of this informal meeting that's sometimes well, formal.
0: What, what I'm staggered at is...
2: So what did they discuss to, at this informal
0: go, meeting? Go, go back to the original guest list, shall we? Uh... So, Thomas Bart, the new and outgoing AOC presidents, Coates and Chesterman, Brisbane Lord Mayor, and the head of the Brisbane Organising Committee, and the Queensland Premier. Why are they meeting in in Sydney? Yep. Why are they in Sydney?
2: Who paid for them to go Who down to Sydney? Now,
0: according to Palaszczuk in another report, um, no, no taxpayers' money was used to pay for Dr. Adib's airfare to, for her, for him to travel with her. Well, but he good. did share her room. Okay, fair enough. I get that. That happens a lot. You know, you, if you, if yep. you pay for your partner to travel on a business thing; they're going to stay. In as long room. as
2: she paid for his meals if he ordered room service.
0: Well, That's yeah, a lot of that going on. We'll have to find out more. So who did pay? Yeah. Who did pay if...
2: But if, if his, it was informal, it was, why would the government be paying?
0: Taxpayers' money didn't pay for his ticket, but it paid for yours? Or did, was that IOC money? But if it's IOC money,
2: if it's an informal it. meeting, why would the government be paying anyway?
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: I would thought they would only pay if there's a formal meeting.
0: Yeah, why would the government pay for IOC business full stop?
2: Well, there's another thing, yeah. Why they,
0: aren't they paying it for themselves? It's, it's an IOC thing why is it's why is the government and if the
2: it? IOC wants the games in Brisbane I would have thought they should fly to Brisbane
0: yeah that's where the games are going to be held why and the why? AOC that knows that in, in so Brisbane? why
2: don't the AOC go to Brisbane as well
0: um well it, it just staggers that they would all fly to Sydney to have this great big get-together and these big announcements when they were half of them were already in Brisbane well maybe only would have taken Coates Chesterman and bark to go to Brisbane wouldn't it
2: yeah, well, well, maybe Thomas Barclay, like a lot of people overseas, doesn't realise how big the distances are. Maybe thought, you know, I'll come into Sydney and we'll drive to Brisbane. It'll, it'll well, only be do just that. down the road, you know. Oh, I know you can do it, but a little bit too far for Tom's chauffeur.
0: It could have been. It just,
2: uh, Although it could come out of his expenses.
0: It's another one of these, you know, just money drips out of the IOC to where that uh, the IOC wants it to drip to.
2: But no one's going to be held accountable, John. That's the no, thing that gets me. It is, is unaccountable. You know, the, the, the Queensland government is not going to hold her accountable, the AOC's not going to be accountable, and the IOC is not going to be accountable. And None It's of them just aren't. going to be a story for a week, goes away, and everyone just goes, woohoo, and we'll go and do it somewhere else.
0: What's Tom come up with now um, regarding not holding... Uh oh,
2: yeah, he said he won't hold, Thomas Mark will not hold nationalist Olympic committees uh, accountable for the decisions of their government. In other words, you know, he's not going to ban Russia for the invasion of, um, Ukraine.
0: Oh, so who was responsible for doping teenage girls?
2: Well, maybe it was the government that made that decision and that's why he can't hold the Russian Olympic Committee. I bet it was some,
0: I bet it would have been more likely to be people involved with the Olympics making those decisions, don't you think?
2: Do you reckon Vladimir Putin
0: sitting back going, Okay, after we dope all the 15 year old girls, we're going to invade the Ukraine. Really? <laughs> the Olympics stands for nothing now except platitudes and fancy um, marketing messages. They Money. stand for nothing. At Money. all. You know, you you know go, going- oh, we can't, we can't punish the athletes. No, you can't. Cause if you don't start punishing the athletes, the, those other people, aren't going to get the message. If you continue to allow the athletes to compete and think that you're stopping things by just saying, oh, no, you can't have the Russian flag, but you can still compete, I mean, that's bollocks.
2: Well, here's the challenge for any of our listeners. Try and find out how many people are employed by the IOC. Now, there is no website that will tell you or list any of the staff. I've even contacted them to ask for their staffing and was told that that was not available. So how many people are employed in the IOC? The worst
0: thing about this is the the IOC gets by on taxpayer government funded money. Okay, The IOC doesn't give Australia a big cheque at the end of every Olympics and say, oh look, that's going to get your athletes through. The, The IOC doesn't even pay prize money. You get a bloody gold medal that, by the way, isn't gold.
2: And often falls apart, like there were several in Tokyo that fell off their um, lanyards or whatever you want to call it. So
0: they just rack up all this cash, they sell all their advertising rights, they get their TV rights, and then they turn around and tell governments to provide the programs to get their athletes ready so that they compete and sell the. the, But they do
2: give money to the various Olympic sports, John, you mustn't forget that. Oh, do they? Yes.
0: Oh, yeah, how does that go down? <laughs> What's that spin on? It doesn't go to athletes.
2: Yeah. Look, I, I wrote a piece on the blog saying that I think it is time that they started giving prize money Absolutely. to the athletes, especially when you look at, in a, in a country like Australia where so many of our athletes are on a scholarship where they don't get any superannuation for their pension later in life while they're, they're on those scholarships. by a lot of workplace yeah, laws. Yeah, exactly. So therefore, if they got a prize money for winning the gold medal, okay, our government gives them one if they win a medal. But why not the IOC, exactly as you're saying?
0: Why is it up to the government to hand out the prize money? The government doesn't run the competition. The government gets no money from the rights deals, gets no money from signing up Coca-Cola and Sony. I mean, it's just a joke. They are just a behemoth that sucks money out of the sports. And it's, it's time for them to go. Quite frankly, it's just got to levels of stupidity that are just wrong Couberton would be rolling in his grave to see what the IOC has become I think it's time for us to go
2: see ya we'll be back next week